Let's pray together. Fathers, we open your word. I pray, God, that you would allow us to behold King Jesus as we have just been singing. Behold our God, behold our King. Come, let us adore him. And I pray, God, that your word would lead us in that adoration. That your spirit would move among us and give us hearts that love your word, minds that are engaged with your truth. We know the spirit is like the wind. He blows wherever he pleases. And I pray, God, that that he would blow in here. And perhaps even for someone who doesn't know the joy and freedom of trusting in Christ, that, that he would work in their hearts to bring about salvation. Lead us in your word, I pray in Christ's name, amen. Please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to Genesis chapter 25. We continue in our study through this wonderful book. This week, as I was studying for this sermon, I came across a quote about old age. So this will encourage some of you, I won't name, This will give some of you encouragement and hope for what is to come. This is what the author wrote in one commentary. Aging is, quote, aging is in no sense a punishment from on high, but brings its own blessings and a warmth of colors all on its own. There is a warmth to be drawn from the waning of your own strength. You can no longer get through a whole day's work. But how good it is to slip into the brief oblivion of sleep. And what a gift to wake up once more to the clarity of your second or third morning of the day. You are still of this life, yet you are rising above the material plane. Growing old serenely is not a downhill path, but an ascent. Speaking of old age... This morning we come to the very end of Abraham's life. He is indeed an old man at this point. And this massive biblical figure drifts into death just like everyone else. He's survived by his wife Keturah, two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, other sons and grandsons. He died peacefully in his sleep at the age of 175 years old, and he is in the presence of God. Perhaps the obituary sounded something like that. We have one more account to go through with this faithful man named Abraham, and it's in Genesis 25, starting in verse 1. Look with me there. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Ledeshim, and Laamim. The sons of Medium were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, 
but to the sons of his combine. He sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his, Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled in Beer Lahiroi. Verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kadar, Adbiel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite of Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. I've said it before and I'll say it again. One benefit of preaching expositionally verse by verse through scripture, it brings you to chapters that otherwise you would never encounter or even approach as a preacher to preach. And here we are in such a text this morning. Just like that, after reading this text, we are now halfway through the book of Genesis. If you're counting by chapters, 50 chapters, we've gone 25. We have 25 left to go. What we see in the structure of this text are two bookends that are on the ends and they hold up a central truth in the middle. The two bookends are actually two genealogies. So if you look in the text, verse 1 through 4, we see the descendants of Abraham that come from his new wife, Keturah. And then on the back end, verses 12 through 18, we see the descendants of Abraham that flow through Ishmael. And right in the middle, between Keturah and Ishmael, you see Isaac highlighted front and center. Let's focus on the two bookends first, and then we'll come to the middle for the focused. First, we see the descendants of Abraham through his new wife, Keturah. Verse 1 through 4 tell us that after Sarah died, Abraham married again to a woman named Keturah. The only detail that we're told about her is that she gave birth to several sons. Six sons, in fact, which led to seven grandsons and then three great-grandsons. The bottom line there is that in verses 1 through 4, we see that Abraham married Keturah, and it immediately leads to 16 descendants. Now, that seems good for Abraham, if you've been with us tracking through Genesis. That seems good because of the years of infertility that he and Sarah had. Remember, they only had one child together. And with Keturah, he has automatically increased his descendants by sixfold. That's the front half. 
What about the back end genealogy? Verse 12 through 18, tell of the descendants of Ishmael. If you remember, Ishmael was the, the son that was born through Hagar way back in the day, Sarah's servant. Here we see the descendants of Ishmael actually form the 12 princes of Arabia. This actually fulfilled a promise of God in Genesis 17, 20, where he said he would form Ishmael into a nation of his own. And here we see it comes to pass. It also, in this text, the very last verse, verse 18, we see another fulfillment that God had promised. If you remember in Genesis chapter 16, verse 12, God tells what Ishmael's life was going to be like even before he was born. He said that Ishmael would be like a wild donkey of a man. Do you remember? How could you forget language like that? His hand would be against everyone and everyone's hand would be against him and he would dwell over all of his kinsmen. And so we get to the Genesis 25 text in verse 18 and the very last sentence says, they, Ishmael's descendants, settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite of Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. In other words, Ishmael's life and his descendants' lives would be filled with strife, hostility, at each other's throats, one hand over another, settling over his kinsmen, just as God spoke that it would be. So there you have these two genealogies that bracket this text, front and back. Abraham was involved primarily with three women in his life, from Hagar to Sarah to Keturah. On the front end, we see the descendants of Keturah. On the back end, we see the descendants of Hagar through Ishmael. And who do we see right in the middle of this text? Look at verse 5. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Sarah's son, Isaac. Isaac, the one, the only descendant of Sarah, who's stuck right in the middle of these two genealogies. Isn't it interesting that on one side you have the 16 descendants of Keturah, and on the back side, you have the 12 princes of Ishmael compared to Isaac, one compared to 16, one compared to 12. It doesn't add up very well if they're at the family get-together and they're playing games based upon who they're related to. Isaac's severely outnumbered. No one's on his team. It's a big difference. And Moses, the author of Genesis, I believe has ordered Genesis in such a way that we would be reading this text, and we would be left thinking, wait a minute, who is the blessed one? I mean, Keturah has the 16 descendants, and Ishmael has the 12 princes of Arabia, and Isaac is by himself. Isaac is the blessed one? It doesn't appear that way. This is why verse 5, 6, and 11 in our text are so surprising. Verse 5 says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Not the 16 descendants of Keturah, not the 12 princes of Arabia. Isaac gets it all. And then verse 6 says, but to the sons of his concubines, which would have been from Keturah, Abraham gave gifts. 
And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son, Isaac, eastwards. In other words, Abraham sent all of his other sons away from the promised land, away from the land that he had given to Isaac. Isaac gets the possessions, Isaac gets the land. And then notice in verse 11, after Abraham's funeral, Isaac and Ishmael are probably standing there in some awkwardness. They, they've had hostility between, them, between each other, right? They've had words throughout the years. I mean, Isaac is the chosen one. Ishmael's the outcast. And Isaac's always been the chosen one. And, but, you know, we're going we're gonna to bite our tongue and we're going to attend dad's funeral together. And we're just going to push through it. And after the funeral, verse 11, it says what? After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac. Ishmael's probably like, of course he does. Imagine the jealousy of the brothers. Guys, it's time to read the will. Let me guess, who gets the house? Isaac. Oh, who gets the land? Let me guess. Yep, Isaac gets that one too. Who gets the blessing from God? Well, Isaac gets that too. You can imagine the brothers saying, he gets it all? Like everything? Isaac gets the house and he gets the land and he gets the possessions and he gets the blessing from God. He gets the camels. Isaac gets the camels, all of them? Yes, he gets it all. Here's a few gifts for you others, but Isaac gets it all. Now, at this point, we may wonder, at least I did, what's so special about Isaac? Uh, why is he getting the special treatment? What has he done to get all the blessings? Why is he in the privileged position? Why is he so special? Brothers and sisters, that is the wrong question to ask. Forgive me for leading you there. I realize I asked it. That is the wrong question to ask. Here's what the heart of this text gets at. It's not about Isaac being special. It's not even about Abraham being special. Isaac and Abraham are not even the main point at all. Here's the main point. God is going to fulfill his purposes for his glory. This is not about Isaac being special. This is about God doing what he said he will do. This is about God fulfilling his purpose. Here's where this hits home for each of us. Here's where this message goes from Isaac's not special, God will fulfill his purpose to where it lands in all of our laps. And it's a dose of medicine that comes with just a very little sugar, but it's a, a dose that we all need to hear from time to time. Life is not all about you, but about God fulfilling his purposes for his glory. Life's not all about you, it's not all about me, but about God fulfilling his purposes for his glory. That 
if we could grasp that truth, life would make so much more sense. We would be able to look at life and the world and everything going on and make sense of it if we would realize it's not about me. It's not about them. It's about God fulfilling his purposes for his glory. That is supremely the explanation for everything that happens in life. Every detail, every circumstance, every condition, every event. God is after the exaltation of his glory. He will be magnified. He will see to it. And rightly so. None of us can make that statement. None of us can say, I do everything for my purpose, for my glory. We, if we said that, we would be in sin. In fact, the very essence of sin is to take everything in our life and say, this is for my purpose, for my glory instead of God's. And so if we can't say it, why can God? Well, the answer, of course, is simple because he is God. What it means to be God is to be worthy of all praise and credit and worship. And if God elevated anything above himself as worthy of praise and worship and credit, that would be God and he would no longer be. And so God must be primarily concerned for his glory because God deserves full glory and anything less than full glory is not divine. Isaiah 42.8, God says, I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. So God is after the lifting high of his glory. And, and listen, there are purposes in life. There are things that happen in life that fill our days every single day. Day, circumstances that will promote his glory more than others, events and conditions, and God is going to pursue each and every one that will exalt his glory the most every single time. Every detail in your life, every event, every condition, everything that comes into your life is a direct result of God orchestrating all these things so that his glory is magnified. And purposes bring these things about. So God is orchestrating purposes so that his glory will be lifted. Now, how does this connect to Isaac? How does this connect to Genesis 25? Well, Isaac is not the point. God fulfilling his purpose is. And Isaac here is just simply the next chosen vessel. There's nothing special about him. What is special is God's promise. And what is God's promise? What has God been doing in Genesis? What is he doing in the Bible? What is he doing in the world today? Primarily, God has been at work to fulfill the promise, a promise to form a people, a specific people who would be restored to his kingdom, who would be reconciled back to himself, who would be rescued from their sin for his glory. That's what God is all about in the world. Why is the glory of God and the magnif 
magnifying of his grace, why is magnifying his grace towards sinners exalting of his glory? I mean, you think about how Adam and Eve left the garden in complete rebellion. Like how we have all walked the same path of leaving the garden and we we egg the house behind us. We spit in the face. We stomp our foot in the ground and we defy the lordship of God. And we're on our way to the slums of the wilderness that we choose to leave all the perfection of God and and all the blessings of the garden and we choose to leave every blessing that God would have for us and doing it his way and under and under his lordship and we choose the wilderness and he would have every right to make us burn like Sodom. And yet, on our way out, God says, I'm going to form a people for myself out of the rebels. I'm going to pull them out and I'm going to bring them back to the garden. Which should leave any of us who are saved today in a spirit of worship because God didn't have to do that, right? The fact that any of us are on the pathway back to the kingdom of God and restored new heaven and new earth is humbling. It should cause us to worship. And you take that reality, does that not magnify the glory of God because he didn't have to do it? That we were on our way to judgment and he he pulled us out in grace to save a rebellious group of people. This magnifies God's glory. This is what God is about in the world. This is what he's about in Genesis and all throughout the Bible. He's, he's forming this people so that he will be magnified. Isaac is not special here. He's not chosen on his own merit. He's not chosen on what he's done in his life. He's chosen based on the purposes of God. Remember Genesis 17, 21? God gave the promise He says in 1721, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, not Ishmael. You think of the brother's response. Well, well, that's not what? Fair. Brothers and sisters, God's not in the business of making things fair. He's been in the business of accomplishing his purposes, which are always just. Fairness and justice, not the same thing. Justice is that God will always do what is right and he defines what is right. God doesn't elect according to who is special. God elects according to his covenant purposes. We may think Isaac is singled out here because it's all about him. He gets the land, he gets possessions, he gets everything. It's not about him at all. It's about God's purposes. His promises being fulfilled for his glory. I mean, think about it. After Isaac, it goes to Jacob. And after Jacob, it goes to Joseph. And after Joseph, it just goes one after another. It's, it's never about the person. It's about God fulfilling his purpose in each chosen vessel along the way. This is where we go wrong in life when we start to think that life's all about me. We schedule the whole program of our lives, do we not, around ourselves, my dreams, my hopes, my plans, my future, my stuff. Brothers and sisters, there's a wind of teaching out there that I would caution you against, a teaching that says, you're special, you're enough, you're sufficient, 
You have what it takes within yourself to live up and be all you can be and you're beautiful and strong and it's, it's all about you. Like the Christian message is just about a God being there for you, a, a personal secretary to kind of puff you up and meet your needs and get you what you want. Like God is up in heaven and he's just trying to make sure he gets all of his to-do list done so that your life can be exactly how you would want it. You just listen to preaching these days. It's all about man. It's self-improvement, self-determination, self-help, self-care, coming from the mouths of preachers, bearing the name of Christ, preaching a self-centered gospel when Jesus preached a self-denying gospel. It's gross. And Jesus said, this life is not about me and you is not about us. Our lives are put on earth to accomplish the purposes of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body to the death, through the cancer, through the unexplained medical condition, through the persecution and the trial and the hardships. Your body's not your own. Glorify God through it in it. You just think about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who would hear a Christian message like, you're enough. You have it within yourself. You're sufficient. Life's about your prospering while they watch their wives and daughters stripped out of their hands, while they watch their friends die in the streets. A self-centered, man-centered gospel will not sustain when you come to the end of yourself and you have nothing left. Only a God-centered gospel will be the surety of your hope that God has purposes in the pain, that he's fulfilling his plans for all of his glory and that you and I can walk by faith through the fire, through the flood, through whatever it is that God has in front of us for his purpose, for his glory. Isaac has a role to play here. He's not the main actor. His life's not the point. God is taking another step to fulfill his purpose. Now, the next part of the text here is the climax of the text. We read of Abraham's death. And if there's ever a peak illustration to drive home the point that life's not all about you, it's the death of Abraham. If you think about it, surely God in this great redemption plan needs Abraham to see it to completion, right? The great Abraham. And then he dies. There's no doubt Moses gives honor here to Abraham as he should. He records his death. Abraham seems to die in an ideal way. Look at verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years. That sounds like a good way to go, does it not? Abraham is honored here, but I find it remarkable how little attention is actually given to the death of arguably behind Jesus, the most prominent biblical figure in the Bible. He gets four verses and then it's on to Isaac. Just keeps moving on. 
Does this not drive home the point that God's plans do not depend upon people, but upon his promises? The people are never the point. Psalm 139, 16 says, in your book were written every one of them, the days number for me before there are any of them. God has a certain number for each of you, probably different for each of you. And it's a countdown clock. Every day the number gets smaller. And on the day that your number is up, your life will end and it will not be a surprise to God. He has numbered every one of our days. Psalm 90, 12 says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, so that we can live our lives with the perspective of, I'm not always gonna be here and God doesn't always need me for the world to keep going. In our world that has everyone pursuing the fountain of youth, God says to pencil in on your calendar every week, my death to be, to be determined. We're like the grass and flowers of the field. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but what remains forever? The word of our Lord. Consider the importance and the royalty of the great Abraham here. He gets four verses and the narrative just goes on. Not because he didn't matter, he did, but because he didn't matter most. This chapter is full of names. Many of them I butchered in pronunciation. People who have walked in history and they've all died. Just name after name, list after list, person after person. And what do we see remaining? God's promise continuing to go forward through the next chosen vessel. Just like that, Abraham's gone. Isaac is now moving forward. Abraham was only the beginning of big names that we see in history of people who have been used greatly by God and then have died. How should we respond to men and women who have died, who have been used greatly by God, but are no longer here? We certainly honor them. We remember them. We take hope ultimately though in this fact. They never were the point of God's mission, but the mission of God was the point of their lives. It's so encouraging to see the giants of the faith die and the mission of God continue to go on. So I did a study this week and I found it absolutely fascinating, a pattern that I found throughout the Bible of how the great men and women of the faith die and God's mission continues to go on. So I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but the book of Genesis ends in Genesis 50, 26 and the very last verse says, so Joseph died being 110 years old. And then the very next book, Exodus, begins with the birth of Moses, the next chosen vessel. Moses, the writer of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, dies. And at the last chapter in Deuteronomy, it records the death of Moses. And then the very next book, Joshua, the verse picks up, after the, death of, after the death of Moses, the Lord said to Joshua, my, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise. He's the next servant. The last section of Joshua, Joshua 24, records the death of Joshua. And then the first line of Judges says, after the death of Joshua. And at the end of the Judges, the people want a king. Samuel comes and 
They get Saul and he dies. And then they get David and he dies. They get Solomon, he dies. And first and second Kings, just list after list of king after king after king who die. And first and second Chronicles is event after event after event of progressing on God's plan. The prophets come, prophet after prophet after prophet dies. And then Jesus comes, the promised king. And the New Testament apostles begin to write about him. They begin to promote his kingdom. But what happens to the apostles? Each one of them die, die, die. And the church is born. You speed up in church history and you see the same thing. Stephen dies. Church fathers die. Augustine dies. The reformers die. The Puritans die. Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Billy Graham. They all die. All of these who have been used greatly by God reach their final day. Doesn't every death testify that ultimately life didn't revolve around that person? Doesn't every burial prove that God's mission didn't ultimately depend upon that individual? Every cemetery is a reminder that God's purposes continue forward even though those people don't. Like trophies fill a shelf, noting one's accomplishments, headstones fill the earth, noting man's mortality. Isn't it humbling to think that one day that each of us will die, you'll be buried into the ground, and life will just continue to go on according to God's purposes? We must not lose perspective that there will come a time where none of us will be here. You just think very locally here at Abner Creek. Has God not proven this since 1832? No one's here from that date and God's purposes have continued to go forward. That there will come a time when I'll never longer, no longer be the pastor of this church. There'll come a time that none of you will be here. You'll either be across the street at another church or you'll be across the street in the cemetery. Isn't that humbling? That there may even come a time, God forbid, I hope it never happens, that Abner Creek Baptist Church may not even be here. But no matter who the pastor is, no matter who the members are, no matter the future of this church, God's future mission is not in jeopardy by any of our absences. His purposes will continue to go on. If the Old Testament didn't depend upon Abraham to move on, the local church doesn't depend upon any one of us. Ian Ian Duguid writes it like this in his commentary. No one is indispensable to God's purposes, not even Abraham. So church family, let us work hard and intentionally to stay on mission as guided by the word so that God's purposes are going forward and, and not our own agenda. Now, isn't this message, I have one area to go when we're finished. Isn't this message so antithetical to what the world wants to hear? Life's not about you. It's about God and fulfilling his purposes through you, through your life. That is so antithetical to a world that has hashtag self-care, right? So my final question this morning would be this. If that's Christianity, that life's not about any of us, but about God fulfilling his purposes. If that's Christianity, who would want it? 
maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're an unbeliever, maybe you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're wondering, well, that doesn't sound too good. It sounds kind of rugged. What, what's the benefit in that? And here's the answer that the Bible gives. There is peak fulfillment and happiness and joy when all of your purposes and all of your life and all of your plans align perfectly with all of God's purposes, all of his plans and all of his purposes and, 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 and his desires. There's peak joy there. In other words, you won't know true joy until you know joy from the Lord. Plenty of believers in the room can attest to this. Your heart was so molded by the hands of God that you won't know true fulfillment until it finds its way back into his hands. Augustine said that our hearts, that, that man is restless until we find rest in God. This is so counterintuitive. In the world that says find happiness and self-happiness, God says you won't find lasting happiness until you are being the person he made you to be, a person not consumed with self, but consumed with Jesus. Your life will be out of place until you fit into God's mold as he would have you, like a, like a puzzle piece finally finding the right position, like an engine finally running smoothly. Why do you think Abraham's life was described in these words? He died a good old age, an old man full of years. Those words describe a content and satisfied life. How could John the Baptist look at all of his followers going to Jesus and say, he must increase, I must decrease, in this my joy is made full? How could Paul sit in a prison and say to live as Christ, to die, well, that's actually gain. How was Abraham satisfied? How was John's joy complete? How was Paul, how would Paul call death gain? They knew the secret, the secret that's totally foreign to the world, that life's not all about them, but about God fulfilling his purposes through them for his glory. So I would actually ask, who wouldn't want that life? A life lived for self is a life lived in constant seeking. A life lived for Christ is a life lived in continued satisfaction. If you're here and you've, you've never trusted in Christ, you've never turned from your sins to trust in Jesus as your Savior, I want to invite you to do that today. To experience the freedom that Jesus bought for you when he died on the cross a freedom to not to be consumed with self anymore, but be consumed in him and to find joy that is lasting and eternal. He died to set you free from being consumed with self. He died so you could experience the joy of being in right relationship with God. He died so that you could have eternal life in him where satisfaction would never end. If I can help you in any way and think about what it means to follow Jesus, I would love to talk to you today. I want to close with this. We see it move, the, the, the narrative moves on to Isaac and it's going to move on from him eventually too. God's purposes will be fulfilled. But how does a life being consumed with God, Jesus, instead of ourself free us? How does that actually liberate us to the life we were intended to live? I read an article this week that had the title how Afghan pastors 
reflect on God's sovereignty. Many of you know the situation in Afghanistan, pastors and Christians and people in general just under extreme persecution. The title says, how do the pastors reflect on God's sovereignty? One pastor received a letter from the Taliban, quote, we know who you are, what you do, and where to find you. The article that I was reading told of an Afghan church retreat that was going on in the last two weeks during all the mayhem of everything. One pastor told of how he encouraged the room with God's sovereignty. He said, we know and believe that God is sovereign, right? We all believe that God is perfect in every way, right? He never sins, right? Yet we see evil all around us. He said, we opened to Romans 9 and were confronted with our presumption and questioning the wisdom of a good and merciful God. He is the potter, we are the clay. We explored the image of the foundation stone and the stone of stone from Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28. From Romans 10, we were reminded that we are to build our faith on Jesus, the only cornerstone that can stand firm through the storm of the Taliban. He said, as they closed the retreat, they sang a song. He said, our song leader chose the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He said, as we sang the final verse, an Afghan brother came and whispered in my ear that Afghanistan's president had just resigned. The Taliban are now in control. And he said, and yet still we sang, let good and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And he ended the article with this one sentence. With everything going on in Afghanistan, he said, the potter is crafting his vessels for his purposes. Brothers and sisters, when we grasp the truth that life's not all about us, but about God fulfilling his purposes, we too will look at life no matter what we're walking through and say, the potter is crafting his vessels for his purposes. Let's pray. Oh God, give us that mentality. Give us that perspective. Give us that faith to look at the world through the lens that would lift high your glory above all things. Shatter our self-centered mentality that we are lulled into many times. Show us the joy of Jesus and following after him. Like finding a treasure in a hidden field that no one knows existed, no one really cares about, but we know and we pursue it with all of our lives. Make it be the case for us. Solidify our confidence in you through the storms and the trials, through the persecution, through the slander, and through all things that we may encounter, that we may see as disappointments or hard times, cause us to see them as molding us and shaping us for your purposes. Give someone here today, maybe someone that would listen later, a perspective of you that would be beyond this world, that they would say, there's more to this life. There's something better to pursue and that they would follow Christ. Lead us as we continue to worship, I pray in Christ's name.
Eminem.